This is a conversation with Evian Leidig, an academic at the University of Oslo, on India, Narendra Modi, and the racist far-right-wing policies of Hindutva that his party, the BJP, is looking to implement. We'll discuss the horrifying consequences of Hindutva within India, how it is destroying the lives of so many everyday men and women. We'll also look at the terrifying implication of how ethno-supremacists like Narendra Modi and his BJP party are building links both at the level of leaders between himself and figures like Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, as well as building support within the diaspora communities of places like the US and UK. Lastly, we'll talk quite a bit about how if the global right wing is building solidarity, the alarming implications that the left and progressives, broadly speaking, are failing to do so. Figures like a Tulsi Gabbard would be disturbing to anyone who's been victim to the horrifying violence currently being unleashed in India by Hindutva and Hindutva groups. For more important and interesting conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog. I highly recommend our conversation with Dr. Kuchang Fang about the links between China China's ethno-supremacy and the global right wing. You can go to our YouTube where we have great videos and art as well as protest footage from around the world and you can check out our website asiaarttours.com where we try to connect individuals to some of the most brilliant and brave academics, artists, and thinkers in Asia. All right, here's our conversation with Evian Leidig. I hope it inspires some critical thinking as well as emphasizes the urgency of where we are in global history and politics. Avian Leidig. I am a researcher at the Center for Research on Extremism, or CREX for short, which is based at the University of Oslo. Uh, CREX was uh, founded in response to the 2011 attacks in Norway by a right-wing terrorist. And as a result of this, the government had established a mandate um, to look into understanding, explaining, and preventing forms of, of right-wing extremism. So in 2016, CREX was established and I was the first PhD candidate at the center. And when I started my research, I wanted to look into Hindu nationalism as a growing phenomenon in India. But about a month after uh, I started my PhD project is when Trump was elected uh, as president of the U.S. And during that time, I had written an op-ed about a number of Indian American Trump supporters. So this sort of shifted my focus um, towards um, my, my PhD, which eventually looked at uh, Indian American Trump supporters, as well as uh, British, uh, British Indian Brexit supporters, uh, and how this then coalesces around um, supporting Hindu nationalism in India as well. So I look at really the transnational dynamics of these 
far-right agendas. And so for today, we'll be focusing uh, predominantly on uh, your writing and research into uh, the BJP Hindutva and uh, ultra-Hindu nationalism. Uh, To start, because for a lot of uh, people, this has really come to the forefront with uh, Narendra Modi and the BJP pushing forward a series of extremely contentious bills in a very general uh, way, airplane bookstore summary here. (laughs) Could you just briefly explain for uh, listeners the CAA, the NRC, as well as, if it's relevant, the NPR, and what resistance to these laws has looked like within India currently? Right. So just to provide a brief overview, the CAA, or the Citizenship Amendment Act, was a legislation passed in December last year. And it essentially allows for the fast track of citizenship for religious minorities in India's uh, surrounding countries, namely Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Afghanistan. And the reason why the CAA has been so controversial is that it allows for the fast tracking of citizenship for what the Indian government deems to be persecuted religious minorities but this excludes Muslims. And one big reason why this has been so controversial is because there are, of course, uh, Muslim minorities that are persecuted in neighboring countries, such as the Ahmadi sect uh, within Pakistan, for example. So uh, the BJP government has been heavily criticized uh, for this act on the basis of religious exclusion. Um, And it's really a, a legislative tool to further the BJP's Hindu nationalist agenda in India. And similarly, the NRC, or the National Registry of Citizens, was an initiative that was first launched in the northeastern state of Assam in India. And it, I mean, it essentially records all the population within the state of Assam. But in doing so, it was revealed that there were almost 2 million people that were stateless because they didn't have the necessary papers Uh, within the National Registry. So um, building off the NRC, there was then uh, an initiative launched by the Indian government called the NPR, or the National Population Registry, which is an attempt to register every person within the country. Um, But this initiative has not yet been implemented because it's been so complicated uh, in trying to arrange sort of the bureaucratic steps necessary to register every citizen when uh, there's millions that are paperless and don't have the necessary documents to be registered. So, I mean, these three uh, legislative tools uh, occurred very closely to each other. Um, The biggest um, so far has been the CAA in terms of the media publicity that it's received. There has been a number of protests in the country for those um, who sort of seek solidarity against the the BJP's Hindu nationalist agenda. Um, And we see protests across India and also um, protests organized by the diaspora, the Indian diaspora around the world, um, with protest events being held uh, at Indian embassies around the world as well. So, I mean, it's received a lot of media and political attention because these three laws um, reveal the BJP's Hindu nationalist agenda and sort of determining who is and who is not counted uh, to be a citizen within the the country. 
Did the BJP anticipate um, the backlash that you've uh, described? And I'm always very curious when governments push through heavily unpopular uh, policies as to the legislative agenda. So did the BJP know what it was in for when it uh, unveiled these laws? And why would they unveil these laws and, and stick with them in the face of such uh, united and fierce uh, civil dissent? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think the BJP did expect some opposition uh, to the introduction of these amendments. But I mean, since Modi's re-election last year, I mean, and this was a re-election that secured an even greater majority uh, than in 2014. You know, this was, uh, besides Kashmir, uh, a major step for the BJP to further its Hindu nationalist agenda um, in, its, in its governmental mandate. So I think, you know, the BJP did expect some type of opposition, but particularly um, after the events that were given in Kashmir last summer, uh, the government has really held on to its strength and its mandate. And there still seems to be a surprising number of support for the BJP's agenda. So, of course, we do see uh, the the protests against the CAA, but what's not shown is also how popular uh, this has been in uh, amongst the BJP's supporters. So I mean that that's I mean that's really the the results of what we see when a far right government has become mainstream in power. And so we don't um, take the easy way out and just say, oh, all these. BJP supporters are thugs or idiots or a basket of deplorables, to paraphrase Hillary Clinton. Within India, generally speaking, and again, each state is different, Assam in particular, extremely different, their situation from the rest of India. And we have a whole podcast explaining Assam because it's so complicated. But outside of the explanations of hatred or bigotry, even though we will acknowledge and get into this does play a large part, anti-Muslim prejudice uh, in support of these bills. What would it, Why would an everyday person or an everyday BJP supporter explain to you if you were sitting down in, in a, having a cup of tea about why they supported these bills uh, in ways that didn't evoke hatred, at least openly? Well, I think the average BJP supporter would, as you mentioned, perhaps not necessarily necessarily evoke uh, hatred or even a very hardline Hindu nationalist ideology, because uh, as we have seen, um, there's no way that a, a party like the BJP could gain support only from those at the extreme ideological fringe. I think for many BJP supporters, it's simply about enforcing law and order. So there's a lot of research that show that people who support parties like the BJP tend to prefer the status quo and tend to prefer more authoritarian leaning policies. Um, so this kind of digs in more towards the psychological attributes of, of a supporter for a party like the BJP. But it does reveal a lot in terms of, uh, you know, support for the government in order to maintain the status quo. Um, and also, I think what's been most successful for, for Modi as the leader of the BJP and as the prime minister is that they tend to stay away from the ideological adherence of their agenda and phrase it more in terms of what's good for the development of the country overall. And that sort of protects figures like Modi 
um, from being overtly called out for what are quite exclusionary policies. I think it would be helpful to explain, number one, broadly speaking, what is Hindu nationalism, or as I've heard it called, Hindutva. And then number two, when we're looking at um, Modi and the BJP, it's, I believe, the richest party in India. There have been numerous complaints uh, from uh, prominent Indian journalists who are critical of the BJP that they control things like uh, media and, as we'll get into, social media. Could you explain um, what this agenda is, this Hindutva or Hindu nationalism, and then who are some of the forces, be it capitalists, be it um, parastate organizations, who help support, shape, or even propose policies for the BJP? Okay, so Hindutva, as you mentioned, or, or Hindu nationalism, as it's loosely translated, is an ideological project to make India a Hindu majoritarian state. Uh, now, Hindutva was a movement that was founded in response to British colonialism, and its first organization, the RSS, was founded in 1925. And the RSS exists as a paramilitary grassroots organization, and it operates um, similar to how we might see, uh, you know, fascist Italy under Mussolini might operate. So there's paramilitary drills, there's a focus on a healthy body and on masculinity. Uh, and the RSS is formed of a network of volunteers who help spread the message and the ideology of an India during its golden age. So an India prior to colonialism and prior to the Mughal Empire, uh, where it was dominantly the, the formations of, of the Hindu civilization. Now, the RSS then later expanded into what is called the um, Vishwa Hindu Parishat, uh, which was an organization founded in 1964, and it loosely translates to World Hindu Council. So unlike the RSS, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, or the VHP, was founded primarily as a religious organization. So they try not to get involved in politics or in, in, in cultural issues that much, but it's more about the tenets of Hinduism. And it promotes a form of Hinduism which is highly politicized, and that's the Hindu nationalism that we see today. Uh, and the VHP has a very broad global presence, and it specifically reaches out to the diaspora, which... Uh, following India's independence, there are many members of the Indian diaspora that then moved to migrated to other countries. And so the VHP was sort of founded in response to that. And then lastly, we have uh, the BJP, which was founded in 1980. And it's the only political party in India that has adopted Hindutva as its official party ideology. So you could think of it as the political arm of the RSS. Uh, and Prime Minister Modi, uh, was uh, sort of, I guess, I don't want to say indoctrinated, but he joined the RSS at a very young age, at age nine, and sort of built through the, the ranks of, of various uh, Hindutva organizations and then eventually entered the BJP where he became uh, a rising star within the party. So when it comes to understanding Hindutva and Hindutva organizations, it's a pretty broad and sort of complicated web of organizations uh, that all sort of work together to sort of further Hindutva ideology, but also have uh, various 
focuses in terms of organizational strategies. So the three that I discussed are the three main ones in India and within the diaspora, but there's also a number of Hindutva organizations that are founded around unions, around um, farmers' organizations, women-only organizations, and so forth. So there's different strands, but together these web of Hindutva organizations form a broad umbrella network called the Samparivar, or the family of organizations. And in terms of, you know, sort of who supports uh, or who's involved within these organizations, I mean, each organization does appeal to a very different demographic. So with the RSS, we tend to see those that are more uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged. Uh, the RSS tends to recruit young men from rural sites. On the other hand, we see the BJP, which is much more elite and professional, uh, urban-based, and really tries to appeal more towards middle-class supporters. So the base of uh, Hindutva support is actually quite broad. When you start saying things like Hindu nationalism, or as I've heard others describe, I won't say it to you unless you bring it up, uh, fascism uh, within contemporary India, it's very ominous because you always want to think um, within uh, liberal democracy, and India has long taken a great deal of pride in saying we're the world's largest democracy, this idea that organizations could be openly nationalist, openly um, exclusionary towards certain faiths or identities, and rise to power in the way the BJP has. I'm wondering if through either your own research or through other prominent thinkers, you have a cogent explanation to explain why this ideology has been able to seize power in India, and if that is a model that other right-wing movements, and we'll get to this uh, later in our interview, uh, look as uh, models for their own country and an own, uh, their own paths to power. So I think what's unique about the rise of Hindu nationalism within India is that it never existed in a vacuum in the sense that it was never just an isolated phenomenon. Um, now, of course, you'll have some scholars that look at Hindu nationalism as a very esoteric phenomenon that can really only be explained by the communal politics within India. And I'm not neglecting how important local context is towards understanding the origins and the growth of Hindu nationalism. But something that I write a lot about in my own work is the fact that as an ideology, Hindu nationalism from its very origins was always in collaboration with uh, far-right thinkers. So we saw, for instance, the founders of Hindu nationalism travel to Mussolini's Italy and meet with Mussolini and look at um, you know, the paramilitary drills that were happening in fascist Italy at that time, and they were inspired uh, by those activities. And that's where we see the RSS sort of model itself today. Uh, similarly, we saw many correspondences occur between uh, Hindutva ideologues and um, prominent ideologues within Nazi Germany. There was letter correspondences, newspaper correspondences, schools being set up within India and within Germany in order to sort of foster intellectual collaboration and, and create a sort of student exchange network. So I think what's unique about Hindu nationalism is that it's never been an ideology or a movement that's occurred in isolation. It's always been somehow connected at a wider 
global scale. And, and we see, for instance, a number of contemporary European far-right ideologues today that draw on inspiration from Hindu nationalism uh, as a model for sort of understanding how a majoritarian state could be enforced uh, within their countries. So as someone who's not a PhD but um, enjoys reading, which I know is not all the PhD is, but um, uh, Pankaj Mishra has really influenced uh, my, my own thinking as well as journalists like Niha Dixit, um, where uh, Pankaj, more so than Niha, in his writing will talk about sort of the shrinking of the state and sort of how neoliberalism uh, has made a lot, uh, has destroyed a lot of sort of communal bonds and uh, in their the absence of the state or the absence of those communal bonds, uh, people who were promised sort of economic salvation or economic riches just find brutal competition. I'm wondering within India and within uh, your research, generally speaking, do you see any correlations between uh, the increasing neoliberalization of India, sort of the financialization and privatization of what was once um, um, the commons or what were once areas where the state would offer support? Do you, do you see a connection between neoliberalism, the sort of shrinking or withdrawing of the Indian state and its obligations to citizens, and the rise of the BJP in, again, from my understanding, they are very integrated into a lot of communities where if there is no state and there is no real economic opportunity or the economic opportunities that exist are just brutally competitive with very low pay, that the BJP does offer stability or financial support in a way that no other organization in India at its scale currently can. Um, but I'd love for you to clarify that, push back on that, and, and illuminate me because I've wondered that for a very long time. It's, a, it's an excellent you know, point of, of reflection. Um, so even though the BJP was founded in 1980, it really grew in the 1990s, and particularly after uh, 1991, which is when India opened itself up to the global economy and when neoliberalism really started to take root within India and it's uh, manifested today um, in sort of Modi's praise for a, a development-oriented um, approach for India. Um, so on the one hand, you know, the BJP was, until the 1990s, a very elitist-dominated organization and it promoted really what we see amongst far-right movements today which is this notion of a, a economic protectionist model for India but then in the 1990s with the advent of neoliberalization in India the BJP started to see an opportunity to be the party that would advocate for uh, a neoliberalizing India so that's when it really started to take root as a popular political party um, across society and today what we see with, with Modi is uh, a party that sort of owns issues of neoliberalization and of a capitalist economy in India today. Modi is seen as the pro-market uh, prime minister uh, and was seen as the pro-market candidate when, when he ran in 2014. And the interesting thing about a figure like Modi 
is he's someone who I think encapsulates both the past and the future. So in the past, in the sense that, you know, he, he dresses in uh, traditional garb, which has become quite popular amongst youth today. He's somebody who frequents temples and is someone who is seen to engage in the cultural rituals of Hinduism. So he sort of appeals towards that nostalgia for uh, defining what India's uh, majoritarian cultural identity should be. At the same time, he is a person who encapsulates the future because he always talks about bringing India forward as a major techno-economic powerhouse. So defining India as a 21st century uh, economy that will sort of progress with the technological industry, and that feeds very much into the neoliberalization of India's economy. And that's part of the reason why we have seen so many young, urban-based, middle-class supporters for Modi, is because he draws into this notion of a development myth. And that's sort of given credence towards the surge in his popularity. So on one hand, I have seen extremely eloquent critics like uh, Arundhati Roy, um, who is long linked, like Pankaj Mishra, the neoliberalization of India um, to a lot of this uh, radicalism, the sort of the broken promises leading to angry young men uh, who come out of villages into the city expecting to be able to get an apartment, a washer, a dryer, a wife, instead finding the only jobs available to them, keep them at uh, subsistence levels and find them living in slums. What I am nervous about, and this is me editorializing and, and asking you again to clarify, comment, push back. What has made me very nervous about these protests is I see the same dynamics uh, within uh, America where prominent liberals who are connected to institutions that are far above power, poverty, publishing, academia, um, very high spheres of, of business or entertainment, using the language of India's constitution, using the language of, of India's secular history, which are admittedly powerful, but if you feel the state has betrayed you and you've been lied to, I worry about the effectiveness of this message. I, I personally believe speakers like Aranhati Roy, or I, I think Niha Dixit, we could say in the same way, or Pankaj Mishra, where they do offer this sort of, um, this remembrance of the secular nature of India, combined with, as, as you've sort of said, uh, exposing the myths of neoliberalism is far more powerful than appealing to what amounts to, in my mind, uh, a nostalgia as well, only this time coming from a more liberal perspective. So I, I wanted to ask, what I just asked you about neoliberalism, are we seeing this same critique or uh, an articulation within um, opponents of the BJP of, of making explicit that the policies of neoliberalism are the same ones powering a lot of the anger that drives the BJP and that actually if we want to save India to make it better, this is what we need to stop rather than the BJP's racist exclusionary policies uh, as a solution, that we need to stop neoliberalism, not stop the Muslims, stop the outsiders and so on. 
Yeah, so this has been a, a strategy of the opposition towards the, the BJP, which is uh, exactly as you mentioned, it's exposing the inherent uh, inequalities that come with neoliberal neoliberalism and not necessarily scapegoating others, scapegoating Muslims, scapegoating migrants, uh, but exposing the, the corruption and the, um, the imbalances that exist uh, as a result of neoliberalism. Um, I think what has led the BJP to being so successful as a party, and particularly Modi, is that you know Modi himself was the son of a Chaiwala. He has a, a fantastic story of coming from humble beginnings uh, and someone who has sort of established himself through social mobility. And so for a lot of um, people within India who are part of this new lower middle class, they, they look at a figure like Modi and they say, you know, he was somebody who was able to gain so much power and influence and had such humble beginnings that I want to aspire to that too. Uh, so we see a lot of uh, young, young men who, as you mentioned, you know, migrate from the villages to the cities and they try to start a life for themselves and they see that it's not working. They, they, they're told this myth from the BJP and its supporters that it's it's the Muslims that are taking their jobs, um, that's not allowing them to envision the sort of life that they wanted for themselves. Uh, now, in terms of whether or not exposing the the negatives of of neoliberalism and its effects, I think you know it's it's been an effective strategy to the extent that it only addresses what we see as um, undermining the BJP's majoritarian model. And it's, you know, again, rearticulating this notion that India is a secular society uh, and that it should honor the human equality and dignity of all who live within its borders and not just the, the majority identity. So I think this is a, a, a point of reference that, that needs to be rearticulated over and over again. And when you talk to BJP supporters, for instance, they'll say something along the lines of, let's look at a state like Pakistan. It's, it's a country which is also enforcing its borders and it's perse persecuting Hindus uh, and, and religious minorities within its country, for instance. That's something that a lot of BJP supporters discuss. And it's true, we should call out countries like Pakistan um, for persecuting minorities within its borders. That should not be tolerated. But at the same time, India should hold itself to a higher standard in uh, allowing for the religious expression and identity of all who live within its borders. And it should uphold that secularism, which Pakistan clearly does not advocate as a state model. Looking at how the BJP spreads its message within India, uh, IT cells will talk about um, and its relation to social media. But just in terms of the scope of how the BJP dominates media, obviously for American listeners, they would they would think of Fox News. Australian listeners are familiar with Rupert Murdoch, as are UK. What is the scope of, of ranging from movies to radio shows to TV channels to the TV news to newspapers that the BJP or uh, RSS uh, or Hindutva allies control and dominate contemporary media uh, within India today? Uh, so to the extent that I do know about this, which is somewhat limited, I admit, um, 
you know, the, the media industry in India is so vast and clearly the, the BJP and sort of Hindutva um, sympathizers have sort of, they have in a sense monopolized many of these media channels and, and we have seen the effects of journalists and, and academics by extension who have been censored for, for calling out the BJP's uh, Hindutva agenda. Um, so th there is really this new environment, unfortunately, of um, seeing the effects of BJP control in the media apparatus um, and, and censoring journalists and those who are critical of, of the government's um, agenda. So I don't, unfortunately, know that much about uh, how much the, the BJP and, and Hindutva ideologues control uh, India's media channels, but we have seen the effects of the BJP's agenda within this arena in the censorship of those who are critical of its uh, of its approach. So to drill down into IT cells specifically, so IT cells, if you could explain what those are, and could you just give your opinion, or if, if opinion is risky in academia, I don't know, I'm, I'm not an academic, what your research ha has, has uh, brought out, what do you think is the importance or uh, are these IT cells exaggerated? So what are they? Do you find them to be important for understanding the power of the BJP in projecting its message? And again, whenever we can, if I was just an everyday person in India, how might I encounter the media produced by an IT cell? So the BJP has recruited a vast army of keyboard warriors who we call internet Hindus or cyber Hindus. And these are predominantly young men uh, who spread uh, pro-Modi, pro-Hindutva ideology online and similarly promote anti-Muslim and in particular anti-Pakistan content online. Um, so the rise of these internet Hindus or, or IT cells, as, as we can call them in terms of its more formal uh, representation of organization, um, was really first noticed during the 2014 campaign uh, when the BJP under Modi had expanded and funded um, a vast array of these internet Hindus to essentially work in an organization to promote uh, the Hindutva message. What's most interesting about these IT cells uh, that are managed by the BJP is how prolific they have become within the diaspora as well. So, um, during the 2014 campaign, Modi was seen as a figure who, uh, in promoting this technology, was seen as authentic, as genuine, as transparent, as, as a man who could communicate with the people and bring India forward as this techno-economic powerhouse in the 21st century. But behind that, that veiled attempt was actually uh, an exposure of the very coordinated and professionalized operations that the BJP had implemented amongst these IT cells. Uh, and Modi's head of communications during the 2014 campaign and also uh, in the most recent campaign last year was someone who was educated in the US. Uh, and Modi's campaign had also outsourced a lot of these IT cells activity towards the diaspora living in the US. So I think what's unique about this phenomenon is how globally connected it is uh, in terms of its its center of operations, it's not necessarily within Delhi, but it's actually most of the online activity takes place in the U.S. So it's, in a sense, exploiting the existing resources of the Indian tech diaspora, 
around the world in order to sort of circulate uh, these messages about uh, the BJP at the same time promoting this anti-Muslim, anti-Pakistan content. I have to touch on a sensitive point uh, because it overlaps. I spoke to Dr. Kuchang Fang, who's one of the leading experts in the right wing in Chinese digital spaces. And it was almost a footnote in our conversation, but he noted that in his research, uh, uh, a large amount of uh, right wing ideology in China, it, it, it's called Han chauvinism. So sort of discrimination gets non-ethnically uh, Chinese within China or social Darwinism, sort of a brutal libertarian ideology that would uh, be similar to uh, the writing of Ayn Rand. A lot of this would appear on forums uh, associated with Chinese diaspora tech workers. So individuals who are either in tech in China or part of the sort of tech diaspora of uh, Chinese who are working overseas. Do we see the same thing in India? And if so, why? Yeah, so absolutely. I see some parallels with Dr. Fan's work uh, looking at the Chinese diaspora. So when it comes to understanding India's diaspora, a disproportionate number of the Indian diaspora does work within the tech industry abroad. Um, you know, it was... So, I mean, we think about Hindutva, for example, as a phenomenon that exists within India, but it's actually... Uh, has a very deep legacy amongst the diaspora. So, I mean, really starting in the 70s, that's when we started to see diaspora Hindutva organizations being created, uh, with the first in, in Eastern and Southern Africa, all the way to the US, uh, Canada, and across European countries. And for many of these uh, diaspora uh, individuals who had sort of migrated from India to Western countries, many of these members of the diaspora were employed within the tech industry, particularly in, in the 80s onwards. We saw a large number of highly educated, highly skilled uh, Indian diaspora techies living in Western countries. And so building on this legacy, uh, Hinduva organizations in India saw how highly skilled and how well-resourced these members of the Indian diaspora were uh, in working within the tech industries in Western countries. And so even in the 1990s, we saw that there were members of the Indian diaspora who were being recruited by uh, uh, Hindutva organizations to spread uh, Hindu nationalist ideology online. Um, so I think, you know, it's, there's a similar parallel to Dr. Fon's work. And for many of these within the Indian diaspora, they do belong to elite professions and have sort of studied abroad in, in Western universities. Uh, but I would like to make a note here in terms of generational difference. We see that nearly 90% of Indian Americans uh, are first generation. And so that has a significant impact in terms of uh, their integration within the U.S., and their support for Hindu nationalism back home. Because for many of these within the first generation, there is a, a, a sort of cultural identity crisis in the sense of they may not quite fit into the U.S. yet. They still have very strong cultural ties to India. Um, and so advocating for, for, for Hindu nationalism becomes a way for them to sort of... Um, engage with their roots in a sense. It's about building a cultural identity 
so, so this sort of vulnerability has allowed for uh, Hindutva organizations to capitalize on. Uh, and uh, on top of the fact that these diasporic individuals have the, the tech resources at their disposal. To bring up another scholar, Ai Huayong uh, works predominantly on looking at how immigration policies can be sort of liberal, neoliberal, or, or uh, supremacist. And something that really alarmed her uh, in previous research into uh, immigration policies in neoliberal countries or is how many of diasporas, be it Indian, be it Asian, uh, non-white diasporas who are integrated into those countries come from these highly selective uh, immigration programs. Um, I want to say H-1B visas uh, are a very contentious visa in that um, they're one of the most powerful for tech workers um, and constantly um, a source of lobbying from Silicon Valley who is relentlessly looking to recruit uh, these workers who they have a lot of power over because of their, uh, their visa. Something that gets me very nervous uh, when thinking about uh, immigration and in terms of oftentimes the easiest path is the most neoliberal, that if you are highly skilled, highly educated, and wealthy, if you're wealthy, it's much easier to immigrate your research, Dr. Fong's research, uh, Ai Weiong's research, alarms me in this idea that it is possible to build sort of a global multicultural ethno-supremacy. And I'm wondering for your own research specifically into immigration, if this is something you think is overlooked and something that alarms you as well, or how have you tried to think of how we can combat an increasingly neoliberal world with neoliberal immigration policies without fearing multiculturalism and becoming protectionist ourselves. I definitely agree in terms of we see uh, very highly skilled, highly educated migrants that support these anti-immigrant policies uh, under the Trump administration in the U.S., for example. So in terms of my research, I, I spent some time interviewing um, Hindu Americans who who support Trump's um, uh, anti or immigration agenda, as and uh, for many of these immigrants, they did come uh, on H one B visas, as you mentioned, uh, many as business people or those who work in the tech industry, which is the primary avenue for most of the Indian diaspora in the U S. It's through H one B visas uh, sponsored by tech companies and. For many of these Hindu-American Trump supporters that I interviewed, it was not necessarily that they believed in anti-immigration platforms, but they believed in a selective anti-immigration platform. So it was favoring those like themselves who are highly skilled and, and highly educated uh, to, to come to the U.S. And, and build businesses or work in the tech sector. And what I had... Uh, developed in response to this was a sense that for many of these that I interviewed, it was about maintaining the status quo. It was about maintaining this hierarchy of, you know, who should be uh, the immigrants that that belong within the U.S. So that was something that was that was quite prominent. Now, when it comes to how immigrants and ethnic minorities are viewed by left-leaning parties, I do think that there is a tendency to see immigrants and ethnic minorities 
as a monolith. And this was something that was actually articulated to me by some by a British Indian that I had interviewed who supported the Brexit referendum in 2016, who was actually quite active in the Leave campaign and worked with Boris Johnson at the time to spread the message towards uh, British South Asian voters to vote for Leave. And this interviewee had told me that, you know, after the results of the 2016 referendum, they saw that there was a very high number of British South Asians that had voted for Leave. And he said to me, now political parties are trying to understand why it is that there was such a high number of, of uh, supporters for leave. And he said to me, you know, I feel like they can't take us for granted anymore. They can't just take us as a, as a monolith, as a voting block. And we need to be understood that there are differences, there are variances within various immigrant communities. So that was something that really struck to me when I was interviewing both diaspora individuals in the UK and the US is there is a sense of, you know, we have differences in opinion, and this might explain why we see an increasing numbers of immigrants who are financially conservative, um, who are voting for more conservative-leaning political parties. When it comes to your research, how I first um, encountered you was this really disturbing article, I believe, for foreign policy You've written a lot, so if I cite it wrong, you can correct me. Uh, uh, talking about how within Kashmir, uh, a coterie of European far-right politicians and influencers came to visit and sort of have private closed-door meetings with BJP officials. For um, the right wing, as you understand it, at least through your research into the BJP, how are they trying to link up these supporters? Is there already uh, sophisticated operations in place like a Britain or like a US for um, the UK elections that recently happened or the US elections where they are going to try to activate these voters, where they are going to try to make sure that they support each other so uh, they will push a Boris Johnson uh, to support a Modi and a Modi to support a Boris Johnson. How is the global right at the top level, the level of a Murdoch, the level of a Bannon, the level of a Marine Le Pen, how are they strategizing um, how they can link up their ethnic supremacies and um, what have you found disturbing, interesting, or important um, from your research into this matter? This piece that I wrote for foreign policy was based on uh, the visit of a group of MEPs or members of the European Parliament who had visited Kashmir uh, in October of last year. Um, and they had visited Modi and then visited uh, Kashmir. And most of these MEPs were members of far-right political parties in the European Parliament. Um, so that sort of instigated... Um, uh, this piece, and it was really a crystallization of what has been for years a collaboration amongst the international far right. Um, now, I sort of trace this in my piece by looking at some of the ideological linkages, looking at the history of, of interaction between various far right actors in India and in Europe. But I think this is the first time that we've seen at such a visible scale the, the height of international collaboration between these actors. And it's really become quite a mainstream phenomenon uh, because of the fact that, um, you know, Modi himself had met with these MEPs. Um, and I should just note that in March, Modi will be visiting 
the EU for the India-EU summit, at which the outcome will be uh, a number of trade talks between India and the EU. And uh, very recently, uh, there was a, a push in the European Parliament to discuss uh, the issues within Kashmir. Um, and most MEPs had voted towards uh, calling out uh, the Indian government for its actions in Kashmir. But there is a, a block within the European Parliament called the Identity and Democracy Group. And these are mostly a group of far-right MEPs. And many of these uh, within the Identity and Democracy Group were those same MEPs that had visited Kashmir in October. The Identity and Democracy Group had actually voted against discussing the Kashmir issue within the European Parliament, saying that there should not be any international action taken against India and that this is, quote unquote, an internal matter for the Indian government. And so this is the, really the first high level response that we've seen from these group of far right MEPs uh, with regards to how the European Union should uh, interact with India in the midst of this controversy. Um, and we'll sort of see it with the outcome of the uh, India-EU summit as, as to how even greater this influence might be. But I bring about this example because it shows at this very highest levels of state diplomacy, the mainstreaming effects of the far right and how it's influencing our international relations at a very high scale. So um, I am... Just scratching my chin over and over listening to you because it sounds like we're living in the the uh, apotheosis of sort of liberal multiculturalism of almost illiberal multiculturalism. This very strange notion you've talked about a couple times in our interview where there are conservative diasporas of immigrants who are almost anti-immigrant, both within their own countries and in, in their uh the countries they've immigrated to. Within, um, and, and if I've oversimplified that, uh, you can add nuance, but what I wanted to ask is, in talking to these individuals, we, we've had mass uh, shootings by white supremacists in the U.S., and the ideology of, of a leader of like a Boris Johnson or uh, a Donald Trump seems to be one of of, of racist, exclusionary um, bigotry that would not allow a multiculturalism to develop no matter how wealthy one got. So I, I'm wondering just for to, ter to turn back to this, and then I'm just going to ask a couple more questions. What is the logic you hear from, from let's say, an Indian diaspora in the UK or US where I might say to them, you do realize this is sort of a Pandora's box where you, you make it a fiscal relief or fiscal rewards, but ultimately supporting a white supremacist, it's, it's a weapon that will eventually turn on you. There's no way to control that ideology when it's unleashed. Um, or do, do you feel that at the level of, of these nationalisms hooking up, that there is actually a way to sort of build what I've called tentatively sort of illiberal multiculturalism. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very good point. And I don't think most supporters of these far-right movements in Western countries understand the extent to which those ideologies can proliferate and eventually exclude individuals like, like themselves. Um, I would say that what is really lies at the nexus 
of these exclusionary ideas. And this might be particular to the Indian diaspora more than it might be towards other uh, immigrant communities in Western countries is a very strong anti-Muslim consolidation that's happening. So there's this notion that as long as it's uh, a Muslim, then that becomes a reference point which brings together Hindu nationalism, which brings together white supremacism. But I absolutely agree with you in the sense that there's not necessarily that much foresight when it comes towards understanding the similarities or the overlaps between these far-right movements. Very briefly, in a U.S. context, I have heard some articles um, bring up a figure like Tulsi Gabbard as a, a very strong example of, of how sort of Hindutva ideologies can be presented and packaged in a way that make them seem progressive or multicultural. Just on the figure of a, a Tulsi Gabbard or a Donald Trump and his presence at the Howdy Modi event in Houston, Texas, what does it look like when Hindutva policies come out of a figure who's not Indian? And what observations have you gleaned from some of these uh, non-Indian politicians in their support of Modi and his Hindutva agenda? Yeah, I think this is a very sinister uh, manifestation of, of Hindutva because I think most people in the U.S. are are ignorant about Hindu nationalism as an ideology. I think this is certainly changing just in the sense that, for example, during the Democratic debates, Bernie Sanders called out Netanyahu's administration uh, for being uh, or for having far right um, uh, ideological approaches. And I think, you know, it took a very long time for uh, those in, um, you know, so it, it has taken a very long time to even recognize that that, that states uh, which are seen as allies to the U.S. could be criticized for having very exclusionary policies. And when it comes to India, I think it might take a while for that to be recognized in, this, in the same light. Uh, I do think that there has been uh, good efforts done by, by journalists, by academics to call out um, Modi's and BJP's uh, Hindu nationalist agenda, but I still think it's it's something that is still widely unrecognized when it comes uh, to public opinion and, and to to media coverage of these events. Um, and this is, you know, this is also should be taken in the context of the fact that the Indian diaspora only encompasses about one percent of the U.S. population as well. So it's also an issue of of representation along with recognition. I would say that, you know, in, in general, Indian Americans or the Indian diaspora in the U.S. Um, does not take a very active role in politics, but they have taken a very strong role in terms of fundraising and financing. Uh, one individual that comes to light is uh, Shalab Kumar, who was a very ardent supporter of Trump's candidacy and, and presidency. Now he's, he's uh, in a number of advisory boards for the president. Uh, and he donated almost a million dollars towards Trump's campaign in 2016. Uh, and he tra actually frequently travels back and forth between the U.S. and India and sort of advocates in India why Trump is should be considered an ally in the White House. Um, so he's sort of a, a person who I think bridges these, these spaces and has become quite a vocal proponent and, uh, of Trump. And I bring him up because uh, during the 2016 election, um, 
his organization had, had organized a rally for, for Trump to speak at. Um, and I think it's quite telling that this rally was held only a few weeks before the election and that Trump would spend so much time speaking at a rally and making a presence uh, when considering the fact that, as I mentioned, there's only um, 11, sorry, 1% of the Indian American population that constitutes the total population in the U.S. So um, the Indian diaspora in the U.S. in particular has a lot of resources and um, uh, at their disposal. So I think we're starting to see political participation within this community, but it is, um, as we've noticed, um, you know, leaning towards figures like Trump, who who they credit as being very similar to Modi. So in interviews I've done with Indian American Trump supporters, they always tell me Modi Trump bye bye, which is Modi Trump brother brother. They're so similar in terms of their um, in terms of what they represent to to these Indian American supporters. Have you seen any good critiques coming? You mentioned Sanders talk about Netanyahu for the U.S. left or U.K. left. Sanders, I'm still a big supporter of personally, but have you seen any articulations, critiques, or groups who are trying to talk to uh, U.S. leftists or U.K. leftists and, and, and say, look, you have to oppose this. People are suffering in India, and it matters a great deal if you speak out. So I do think that there are a number of very prominent um Indian diasporic individuals, uh, either in politics, the media, or academics, who were um, calling out um, the the tendency of of the left and in, in their in their countries of residence for supporting what are very exclusionary policies uh, of countries like India. Um, I think you know part of this effort is just to increase growing awareness of the fact that. Yeah, India might be the world's largest democracy, but it is, and it's an ally to many Western countries. But you know, we need to start to rephrase that conversation and have a discussion about the fact that uh, what countries like the BJP government is doing is actually quite harmful, and that we need to see that there's similarities there uh, within um, these far right movements across the world. When we look at the U.S., we see a, a rise in uh, sort of citizen violence. What I would, you know, groups who are, they're not police, they're not army. They may be affiliated with white supremacy. They may be uh, activated by white supremacist ideology. But we see this violence of, of groups who, who don't have state support committing acts of violence. So white supremacists on an individual or a group level combined with a rise of state violence, um, most notably ICE, uh, but also, uh, I would say, a rise in police violence and police brutality under Trump. Um, could you explain within India, which has seen, um, from my knowledge at uh, Jamia Milia uh, Islamia University and the Shaheen Bag protest sites has seen shootings, um, in Gujarat, obviously, um, the violence of, of Modi, I think, has been very well documented by journalists like Rana Ayub uh, and others. Could you explain in India if, like we see in the U.S. or U.K., um, where we see a rise of ethno-supremacists at sort of a citizen level or within uh, a group like white supremacy, do we see uh, uh, this 
co-implicated rise between the state and the parastate in terms of violence in India? Hindutva organizations have been involved in in violent events uh, for decades now. Um, we see the rise of paramilitary organizations, of um, organizations that advocate for violence and so forth. But now that the BJP has been in power, we have also seen the rise uh, of hate crimes, the rise in Calvin genes by vigilante groups, for example, and the BJP and Modi uh, uh, tend to ignore when such questions are asked about how their rhetoric and their uh, agenda is influencing and sort of mobilizing individuals uh, to commit acts of violence um, that further the Hindu nationalist cause. What we see recently with the shooters uh, at Jamia Millia Islamia University and the Shaheen Bag protest sites um, are is, is something that we see across uh, far-right movements around the world, which is the role of, of social media and of online spaces in helping to radicalize these shooters. You know, there's some disagreement amongst experts as to how significant uh, online spaces play in helping to radicalize individuals. I mean, there's many that argue that, you know, it's sort of these offline connections that are built first before... Um, you know, interacting with like-minded uh, individuals in online spaces. I, through my research, have seen that online spaces have played a very prominent role in fostering a community and a culture of belonging. And it's important to recognize that those who migrate to such platforms are seeking um, uh, recognition for their views and are seeking um, friendship and, and camaraderie. So I think it's important to understand how significant online spaces can play in helping to further an individual's uh, radicalization of an ideology. Now, something that I was quite surprised about was how very little media attention these, um, these shooters have received at an international level. Of course, within India, it was recognized, sorry, in, in Indian media, it was recognized that, that you know, these events the, these incidents had taken place, but it's never situated within the context of a global far-right movement. And that's sort of what motivates me to do my work, is to connect the dots and say, look, we have exclusionary nationalisms that are taking place around the world, and they are globally inspired, um, and nothing exists out of a vacuum. So I, I think um, in terms of um, how the BJP and how Hindutva have played a role in, in these shooters, I think we can connect this. It hasn't been done quite yet, so I hesitate to, to even um, make this claim, but I think there needs to be more work done towards looking at the BJP's IT cells and how this might connect to um, influencing the radicalization of shooters that, that we have seen most recently um, against these, these protesters in India. When we look at uh, the U.S. context, and, and um, I'll speak to it, and then you can comment on how it is in India, we see sort of this tension uh, that I would articulate for me personally as someone who's seen my family become more uh, poor, <laughs> is the only way to say it. I could say downwardly economically mobile, but poor is, that's a mouthful, just say poor. Um, is this sort of tension between, on one hand, you, you see uh, a right wing uh, in the U.S., U.K., Australia, India, China, I think we could say, uh, that's becoming more and more ethno-supremacist. On the uh, more 
liberal side of things, we see a liberal nostalgia for sort of a golden era of multiculturalism that doesn't acknowledge the sort of broken promises and dreams of neoliberal economics. On one hand, you see this this huge amount of, of state violence and hatred. On the other, you sort of see this slow death for a, a wide variety of people who cannot rise into elite positions uh, in tech, law, medicine, academia, entertainment, and so on. Um, uh, representational politics without intersectionality uh, to, to class, basically. Within India, for those who are being threatened, are being hurt, are being their lives torn apart in places like Assam, being lynched uh, in, in, in places like Gujarat, being killed because of these ideologies. What have been conversations, we've talked a lot about the India right wing, but with India liberals, have there been frank and honest conversations about we, there, we can't go back to a liberal nostalgia that doesn't look at the, the sort of economic conditions that drive a lot of people to extremism. That, to me, in the U.S. is one of the, the great tragedies of our, the politics of our era that for seeing my family become more poor, seeing other people I know commit suicide uh, because of their economic conditions, seeing people become angrier and angrier as their lives deteriorate, to then see the only alternative be a liberal nostalgia for sort of a multicultural era without looking at the disintegration of most people, black, brown, Latino, white, their economic conditions, to me just seems like two horrible choices to make. You can have white supremacy or you can have uh, elite representation. And I'm wondering within the, the liberal spheres of India, are there, as we talked about with Pankaj Mishra and his book, which I, I keep referencing without naming, The Age of Anger, are these topics coming up about where people can go if they want to be protected? And to be blunt, is liberalism still even an option or do we need to build something new that we don't really know what it is yet in order to protect ourselves from both ethno-supremacy and neoliberalism? Yes, yeah, so I think you've really hit the nail on the head. I, I can't speak too much about uh, the responses amongst the left in, in India, but I can speak about this at a very general level as somebody who looks at the far right at a very transnational scale, uh, which is on the one hand, how do we prevent stigmatizing and othering, including perpetrators themselves? Because as you mentioned, there is a very emotional human reason for uh, uh, eventually advocating you know, exclusionary beliefs. I mean, there's, there's a, this is a symptom of, of a cause, what we see with, with the rise of the far right. So on the one hand, how do we prevent stigmatizing and othering, including uh, those with far right sympathies, whilst at the same time, not legitimizing those grievances as far right beliefs, as a far right agenda. So how can we in effect see the greater scope of, of human dignity and human equality, because that is something that is missing from the picture when we have these discussions of, you know, how do we counter the challenge or the threat of the far right and what can the left do 
um, to sort of effectively counter that. I think it's time that we need to rehumanize, um, you know, sort of the the equality and the dignity of, of all so, so we could really have a very comprehensive framework, a comprehensive dialogue to, to recognize human rights in its totality. Um, so I, I don't, I mean, I am generally very pessimistic, unfortunately, as maybe it's just because I'm a millennial, but I mean, as somebody who looks at, uh, you know, far right content all day, it can be, it can be quite uh, traumatizing and you can feel a sense of hopelessness and despair, but something that has really encouraged me to go forward uh, and in particular when I have interviewed far right supporters is that you have to see them in very human terms and you have to come to understand that um, you know p- structures of power and structures of oppression um, do not see differences in, in, in race and in, in class and in, in religion and immigration status and so forth. This is simply a story of sort of challenging these greater structures that um, bring about systematic inequalities. Well, uh, Evian, it was wonderful talking to you. Was there anything we didn't bring up or any point you wanted to emphasize about these topics? I hope that you felt we treated this discussion with a lot of respect and nuance that I know it deserves. These are, this is not an abstract political discussion. People's lives are being destroyed every day um, in all these countries because of these ideologies. Was there anything you wanted to emphasize? And where can people find you if they want to read more of your research and work? Um, No, I mean, I I think we had a really great thorough discussion. So thanks for inviting me. Um, If you want to know more about my work, you can follow me on Twitter at Evian Leidig. And you can also check out my website, evianleidig.com, where you can find more information about the op-eds that I write, as well as the academic work that I am currently focusing on.